Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome everybody to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. As always, I am joined by the adorably agreeable partner in crime, Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing very well, Mark. I'm, am I agreeable, really? No, not at all, but you know. I know. I think, <laughs> I think you're adorable in your disagreeability. How's that? That sounds awesome. You know what I was just thinking? Uh-oh. Is there actually an order to how you greet people? We should go through all the old recordings and check <laughs> if you always say like good evening, good morning, good afternoon in that order. I don't know if I do. I think I mix it up. I think I, I kind of change, chop and change a little bit. Huh, interesting. I think it's entirely possible that is indeed what happens. <laughs> so we haven't been doing podcasts for quite a while. Again. No, you suck. <laughs> I blame you. No, no, I just cancelled one, right? And that has a good reason because I was kind of busy studying and doing sorts of, all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, excuses, like, excuses. It's just, uh, you know, <laughs> general laziness. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Laziness. So what's new? What's new? Okay. Uh, well, well, hold on. We should need to go through today. It's been oh, that yeah. since you've done a podcast that you don't remember. Um, yeah. since, since I remembered, I'm going first. Um, uh, agreement is reached on a plan to reunite Germany. I get to beat you to the punch on that one. It's the 25th anniversary today. Yep. Uh, Galileo Galilei arrives in Rome for his trial before the Inquisition in 1633. That was today. Uh, first guy to think the world wasn't flat. Um, ooh, I like this one. The Australian Prime Minister issues a formal apology to the Aboriginal people and the Stolen Generations. It's the seventh anniversary of that. Well overdue. I saw that too, actually. And I was thinking like, well, Kevin Rudd is like how many Prime Ministers ago? Four? Yeah. <laughs> In like seven years? Well, you know, we've, we've Aust- probably, getting, we're probably getting rid of this one too. Like, it's just a matter of time, exactly. really. Yeah, Australia is really, you know, chasing Italy and Japan for, you know, most Prime Minister changes in a short period of time. Well, you know, if we don't like the Prime Minister, the, the, for the American listeners, because this freaks out American listeners, I love it. <laughs> like, how do you get rid of a president? It's like, well, first of all, we don't have a president. What we have, we have a leading party. And so when we vote for party, you can turn around and say, well, the party's still there, but we're just going to have a vote of no confidence to say that our actual leader right now, we don't really like him and he sucks. So we're going to get rid of them. So hopefully that happens soon. I'd be loved. I think it's a ve- it's a very very interesting flavor of the Westminster parliamentary system yep. that parties can do that that easily. Just like you know, stay in power but switch their prime minister. It's the same in New Zealand, and I think it's very similar in the UK yeah. as well. Um, but you know, in even European countries, that's rather unusual. You would actually have a new uh, re-election if you wanted to switch prime minister. Yeah, I think it's. I actually kind of like it. It basically means if you're prime minister, like you got to stay on your toes. You got to you got to do your job, do it well. You know, keep your approval ratings up. You know, you can't. You don't just have a free reign for your entire thing. You you, you got to stay on your toes and, and really do a good job. <coughs> and that's sort of, well. I mean, Tony Abbott is clearly not doing a good job. <laughs> I think that's quite easy to even to see for me from another country. I, I'm almost surprised that you can't hear me rolling my eyes <laughs> oh man so um what else oh, did i find I got, have... I got one more i got one more oh really more. oh jerry springer 71 today really yeah. i found another interesting nice one um today in the year 2000 the last original peanuts comic strip was published in a newspaper oh nice one yep and um then another one in 1960s, the French did a um, nuclear test in Algeria, which made them become the fourth country to possess nuclear weapons. Bastards. <laughs> Interesting. Yep. And that's about it. Um, all the others I unfortunately had were uh, mentioned by you already, the interesting ones. Okay. Well, bugger. I lost. Okay. All right. Well, then let's get uh, stuck into what exciting stuff. We actually haven't spoken since, I want to say, it's September last year. Well, yep. we haven't spoken with a recording running. That's in the true. <laughs> we talk all the time. We're buddies. Um, <laughs> so, so coming uh, to the question, what is new? What's new? <laughs> so I suppose it's pretty exciting. Um, it's uh, pretty weird, but uh, so... I don't know how much of the details I can get into because of NDAs and whatnot, but um, yeah, I'm going for an interview at Google in California very shortly. Mm. Um, 
and I don't know why I said it like I was, you know, a valley girl or something, but <laughs> with an inflection in the end of my sentences. Um, but uh, no, it's pretty exciting. Uh, one of the guys I know there uh, referred me for the job. Um, I've gone through a couple of initial interviews already over the phone. So now I'm flying over for on-site. So um, yeah, pretty terrifying. Will mean that you know I'll end up actually moving country with the family if I get it. You know, we want we decide we want to do it, and um, I'll probably share some more details depending on whether I get it or not, or I don't, and uh, probably end up taking it from there. What would happen to Suki if you? She comes with. Oh, she has to. Would she have to go in quarantine or something? Um, from what I understand, and I need to do proper research. Um, I need to, basically she needs to get a rabies shot about a month before we leave, and then basically we stick her on the plane with her and we walk off. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, well, we've got no rabies here. We've got nothing like that. So, um, it's it's pretty straightforward at that point. Okay. Cool. So that's exciting. Not bad. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know what to think about it yet. Still, it's it's a pretty big change. Um, so, but uh, you know, get to get to go look at the Googs. Um, and the cool thing is, I am interviewing at the Mountain View office, so I do get to check out the big one. Oh, nice. I mean, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty scary and terrifying and exciting all at once. Um. Had to really brush up on a whole bunch of algorithmic work and data structures and stuff just for the interviews, um, which was uh, interesting. Stuff I hadn't really looked at for a really long time. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I have like, um, I mean, you read about all those interviews all the time, right? And I kind of disagree with that interview technique. It's an interesting I one. I don't think it provides the... How can I explain that? I, I don't think it provides the level of knowledge you want to gain about a candidate. You know, it's fine. I can, you know, I can study algorithms and I can learn algorithmic work by heart. And yeah. It has, has no, it has no, you know, it's like it has no reflection on the actual I ability of a candidate I, to do a job, I think. I can't, I can't, clearly I can't speak about any of the specific questions, but... um. I don't think you're going to find that you're going to walk in the door and be like, uh, you know, implement quick sort for me. Like that's not going to happen. But you might get a question based around the theories of that or uh, the theories of a certain data structure or applying a certain data structure to a problem. Um, I'm sort of defending it here, but um, the, I did some research on the same thing because I didn't know. I was like, oh, I don't know if I agree with this, but this is an interesting one. And there's a couple of things I got out of it, which, which I don't mind, one of which is – they seem to be really what they what they want to be able to do is test how you think. So if you can do the algorithmic work within the exams and basically solve a tricky problem in an algorithmic way and understand its uh, pros and cons and its performance and its complexity and that sort of stuff, then that proves to them that you're someone who can think critically, which is what they're really looking for. Um, which I get. And the flip side they say is that 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 um, from what I've read around anyway, so this is the stuff I was reading because I did all this research, was that they know they'll get a bunch of false positives. So they'll get a bunch of people who yeah. can't do this, and but would probably be a great fit at Google. Um, but they say the 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 cost of hiring someone who's bad is way higher than the cost of not hiring someone who's so, good. Someone who's good, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I, I can see that to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, when right? I sort of did that, I was like, okay, you know what, I can I can sort of respect that. Yeah, and I mean, it's not only Google. It's like, you know, a lot of large companies do that kind of thing. Yeah. And I would, you know, like, I think it comes down to the phrasing of the questions, right? I've heard yeah. of, of scenarios and cases where people, you know, are put in front of a whiteboard and they are told like, you know, write this program or implement like quicksort or whatever, you know, sorting algorithm on the whiteboard. And I think like, well, that is not, that's pointless, right? Yeah, or like do a language test, you know, show me how to use this feature in a language or in, in, I don't know, CFML tags or whatever on the whiteboard. It's like, well, no one is ever going to do that, right? Because when you actually code, you've got an IDE with code completion and you've got yeah. your documentation next to you and all that stuff. It's like, you know, those are just totally unrealistic scenarios. However, and you had a fair point there, right? Like if the objective is to find out if someone can solve abstract problems, yeah, I would agree that 
talking about things like, you know, I don't know, complexity not- notation, like O notation and stuff like that of certain algorithms on a very high level point of view, that can be very useful yeah. to find yeah. that kind of thing out. I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, um, interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. The memorization part of it is, is hard. Like I did sort of some interviews, what, like three, four weeks ago now. And so I'm coming back again and I'm like, how much of this stuff have I forgotten already? Just going back through it and looking through all the code samples I wrote and all the sort of stuff I wrote. And I'm like, man, I forgot so much of this already. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit tricky that way. Um, so it is what it is. There's not a lot I can do about it. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see what what happens. Oh, cool. So yeah. Alrighty, should we? Yeah, you got on? your um, yeah, commercial pilot's license. Sounds like. No, I haven't got my commercial pilot license. I passed all the written tests. Oh. So, so I need to do all the flying part. But yesterday, I finally set the last exam principles of flight and passed that as well and that means i've got like a what's called full exam credit for that now yep. so you have to basically sit all the six exams in like three years and obviously you know if you are like 19 and you go through flight school because you want to be I know, an airline jet pilot that's reasonably easy to do you know you just do it like in four weeks basically you know intensive course do the exams and you're done with the written test mm. um but i did my first three exams in 2012 and end of last year, I realized, ah, oh, there is a counter ticking against those exams. Like, I have to do all six and pass all six in, like, three years from the first one on. So my first one from 2012 was expiring the 23rd of February, like, in 10 days. So I had to actually, after I realized in late December that I need to do them, had to actually do all th- three missing ones in January and February, which was a bit of a mission, but it's done at least now. And now I've got another three years to do all the flying part for it. Okay. Well, that gives you some time. Yeah. I don't want to stretch it to three years. I want to do it in, you know, maybe within a year or something like that. But, yeah, theoretically I had another three years to do it. Nice. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I mean, you learn a lot of stuff about flying that you have forgotten from your PPL training like years ago and you learn a whole lot of new stuff that wasn't even covered in the PPL training just by going through the books so it was actually you know just worthwhile even if I never even if I was never to actually sit a CPL test it's just like interesting knowledge gained yeah it's actually kind of funny like you say that doing all the algorithmic stuff and the data structure stuff has been kind of interesting in that some of it I studied before and some of it I hadn't I'm not having a computer science degree so going through it all was really quite fun and interesting to kind of be like okay oh now I actually understand how Quicksort works (laughs) (laughs) did you do like you know like um, theoretical computer science to some degree in your in your university degree or was it totally uh, not covered at all? Not really. I did a data structures and algorithm co- uh, subject. Um, oh, okay. But that was – and that was an elective. I mean, because I did a multimedia degree, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's that's um, that's where I ended up. But, um, yeah, so, so missed out on some of that stuff. Never did compilers or anything like that. Oh, that's a shame. You should actually, you know, just – do some Coursera uni courses or something like that. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. This is the stuff that I've dabbled with. You know, I've written stuff with, with like parsers and lexers and stuff. But um, yeah, it would be it would be good to get into that. But I don't know. I'm digging into all sorts of things at the moment. Yep. Cool. All right. So for today, we've got a whole bunch of topics. Um, actually, seven if I count that correctly. Oh, yeah. And I I doubt we're gonna make it through all of them. But maybe we should get going at least sounds good to me cool so do you want to pick go in go through the order or pick something to start with want to roll a dice i would actually be really interested in rust that's one of the topics because i have no bloody idea what rust actually is what it does and what you know why you would use it over any other language (laughs) all right so i had a, a kind of free week the other week um and um I was like, oh, I'm just mucking around. Okay, so Rust is a really interesting language. Um, I would probably say off the bat, probably don't use it for production yet, just because um, they're meant to be, it's like every week there's a breaking change in the language. It's really liquid. Um, but uh, it's a really, really interesting language. So I wanted to play with Rust for two reasons. Um, 
and there's a bunch of other stuff underneath it. But the two reasons that got me into Rust was I'd been dying to play with algebraic data types for a really long time. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll get, get a bit into what those are in a minute. Um, and I've been doing a heap of stuff with Go, and I was looking around to see what's another good systems programming language that I could sort of do a bit of compare and contrast with. And so Rust seemed like a, a Rust is a systems programming language. Um, it has a very different bent than Go. Um, so I started playing with it. And so Rust is really, really interesting. So Rust is a, a very strongly typed language. Um, it uses algebraic data types, which basically means, I don't even explain that on a podcast, um, which kind of sounds scary, but gives you, if anyone's written Scala, Scala's got algebraic data types or Swift, mm-hmm. sort of Swift, um, as, well as, some, as well as some other things. Uh, Haskell, obviously, is the, the, the big winner in that space. Um, but that's where you can start doing things like saying, I want this thing to have this, this, they call them traits in often cases. I want it to have this trait and this trait. Um, so you have some types, um, where you have enumerations where it could be or this or this. So the, the big one that big takeaway from me with algebraic data types is you don't have nil pointer exceptions. Those can never, ever, ever happen. So if you're sending back something, um, that say potentially could have either an answer or like none, right? So you may be doing a search algorithm, which is the, the big one. So you might send back nil if it's not found, and then you can run to nil pointers. What you actually do is you do instead is you use an option type. An option type is an enumerator, which has either one of two types, which is one is none, which is nothing, or two, mm-hmm. which is some with some sort of value in it, normally specified by a, and I've lost the word, um, generic, specified by a generic. So some oh, of okay. some value or a none of none value. So when you get back your value, it's either some, like say it's a number, so some five or none. So if you are doing stuff in your compiler, if you're not handling that none option, it's actually going to throw an exception at you going, I can't compile because you're not dealing with this type. So you never get no pointers. So that's, that's a, that's a big thing for me. And you can also do some really interesting, um, really interesting, uh, just flow of your program and stuff like that, which is really so what, nice. What do people normally build with with Rust, or what have people built with Rust? Yeah, in, so, uh, so far, Rust is a systems program language. So you're looking at like, um, all right. So actually, let me take another step back. The other thing that's really interesting about Rust, um, not only that, is Rust doesn't have a garbage collector. What Rust has is um, a variety of pointer types. So when you're programming with Rust, and um, and probably not pointers in the way we normally think about them, when you program with Rust you actually have direct control over whether something gets stored on the stack or whether it gets stored on the heap. And it works by this, this, this idea of ownership, which is really interesting. So um, when you pass, say, a variable into a method, and so you just use like as you would normally, mm-hmm. um, then it actually gets owned by that method. So you can't use it later on in the program. So basically, it travels down into the stack. Ah, oh, okay. So you so get so if you're like this owns that boom, it's like in there. You can't nothing else afterwards can touch it. Like you're done. Like you're done with when it. When you when you say you can't touch it, does it also mean it you can't compile. read it? Oh, it doesn't. Yeah. Ah, okay, it doesn't compile. Yeah, yeah, doesn't compile. Like it just won't compile. You can't do anything with it. It's not a runtime error. It's a compile time error. Mm-hmm. But you can send stuff to be borrowed. So you send it as like a pointer. And so if it gets borrowed, it'll go in, it'll come out, and then afterwards you can do stuff with it. So if you're just reading something in that function, for example, you might just make it be borrowed. Um, there's a few other different pointer types, depending on whether it's shared amongst references, whether or not it's stored on a heap, that sort of stuff. But what it means is, which is really kind of interesting, is it basically keeps track of what goes in and goes out. Um, first of all, that means that if you're doing embedded system programming, that's great. You don't have a GC, so you're not worried about um, something just randomly dropping off. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, just randomly like getting a time, like a slowdown or a speed yeah, up. Yeah, doing, doing some running. work in the background. Yeah, doing some work in the background. Um, it also means that uh, you have to do a bit more work and be really careful with what you do. So there's that trade-off there. Um, but the other interesting thing is, is if you're doing like file operations, like the classic file operation is you always have to like defer or or finally to say close this file. Yeah. In Rust, you don't have to do that because it's already tracking ins and outs within the scope of, of whatever it is you're working in. So you so get a file, it manages it for you. But that means it's doing some kind of a garbage collection behind the scenes. Not really a collection. It's not a it's collection. Doing, it's a tracking, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. doing something to you know keep it organized. But it's always con- yeah, but it's always consistent, and it's always doing the same thing. So there's no variability there. Okay. 
which is kind of interesting. And so it's it's a very interesting memory model. It's um, worth at least playing around with, I think. Um, I, yeah, it took me a while to get my head around it, and probably still there's probably some nuances to it that uh, that make it a little bit more tricky. Um, there's a few other really interesting things about Rust. Um, everything's private by default. Like, everything is private. Um, to the point that if you actually want to make a public API on anything, you need to expose it, including like objects or packages or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything's immutable by default, which is also really interesting. So if you create a variable, you need to specify whether it's mutable. Uh, is that the, the MUT, the MUT statement? Mute. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw that um, in some code. Yeah, so it's it's very constrained. Um, I, I would probably sit in the same space as what you want to, in some ways, of what you want to build and go. Like I could see you building like systems tools, you know, um, distributed systems platforms, backend services, um, stuff that if you want to do embedded on like chips, like ARM chips and stuff like that. It's got those sort of stuff. Um, but it's an interesting language. I, I, I really I really enjoyed playing with it. Um, and it sort of stretched me in some interesting ways, especially in the algebraic data type stuff. At some point, I need to get into Haskell. That's just going to happen um, just for just for kicks. I really want to sort of just try that, that sort of stuff out. But um, it was sort of a nice in-between sort of thing to, to, to play with. And, and their, their book's not bad. Um, they've got an online book. Um, but, yeah, the fun thing is is that every week something changes, something breaks. And, you know, I downloaded it daily and installed it, wrote a whole bunch of stuff, and then I downloaded it again. And they're like, no, now you need feature flags to turn on stuff that isn't quite stable yet. <laughs> I'm like, this is a, this is coming into 1.0, right? And they're like, no, So it compiles you a binary, I assume, right? Like yes. A, a, a native binary for whatever platform you run it on. Yep, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Very much like Go does. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it's pretty good that way. Okay, cool. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I quite like it. I quite like it. I think I'll, I'll go back to it once I've finished uh, my career with Go. Um, with the, it's basically I'm doing everything in Go for my presentation, for stuff for my Google internet stuff. So how can you run Rust currently? You have to run it on your own box, right? You have done. There's no easy way to run it on a on a um, scalable cloud platform somewhere. There's a play.rust, uh, play.rustlang.org actually, and so you can actually write Rust on the browser. Oh no, I meant like you know if I wanna if I write something, let's say, and like, like you know the the Google Cloud Compute Engine which supports Go, right? Oh oh yeah something yeah, something like that. So, like, yeah, run it in a Docker container or anywhere like yeah, same okay. with yeah. a regular Go binary. Yeah okay. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Interesting. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, I, I quite like it. It's um, it's worth. I think it's worth looking into if that sort of thing seems to float your boat. Um, it's got some nice, you know, you you can. It's got closure support, which works a little differently than how I probably like it. In that closures are specific. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's interesting. Cool. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a niche language, but I like some niche languages. <laughs> Coming <laughs> for experimentation anyway. Taking a bridge to another niche language. Oh, oh CFML. <laughs> um, you've, I assume you've heard that Rilo has been forked into a thing called Yeah, Lucy. no, I don't know really much about this. I have vaguely followed it along the sidelines, but I haven't really done anything more than that. Um, so fill me in on the details. So it's kind of interesting, right? I'm, I mean, for the last, I don't know, year or one and a half years, I've been a bit involved with the Rilo community because I think if someone wants to continue on the CFML platform, they should probably do that on, you know, Rilo or now Lucy and not on Adobe Cloud Fusion, but that's, you know, my personal op- <laughs> opinion, obviously. Yep. So I think Rilo was a good thing for the language because it was kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit that Adobe never wanted to push for the first Bit. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, like, um, it actually works better than Adobe Cloud Fusion, but that's a different, you know, discussion. Basically, we don't need to have now. So what happened though is, um, about what's now mid-February, about two weeks ago-ish, um, Rilo was forked into a new project called Lucy. Lucy is owned by a Swiss association, mm-hmm. which is like a kind of a non-profit entity in Switzerland. Um, the Lucy Association, and the Lucy Association basically now continues the development of Lucy. And Lucy 4.5, which is the version that is currently out now, is a fork of Rilo 4.2, essentially. 
Um, and there have been already a few updates and fixes for Lucy um, to 4.5.0.1 or God knows what, what version number it is. Um, but, you know, there is at least a lot of movement happening. And on the new Lucy mailing lists, there is currently a really interesting debate going on, you know, what's the future of Lucy? And it seems like that um, there are two fractions of people, right? I mean, you can obviously assume there is... I don't know how to call that, a, f- a fraction of people who just want to keep the status quo. You know, for them, CFML, like CFML templates and CFCs, and mm. keeping compatibility to Adobe Confusion is the main thing. You know, And I'm not saying for, you know, right or wrong reasons. I can totally see why some people need that compatibility. That's fair enough. And then there's a fraction of people I would count myself to, and, you know, people like Sean Corfield, for example, we try – I'd rather see some change in the language, and I'd like to see it evolve, right? For example, uh, you know, tech-based CFCs. It's one of those things no one ever needs, and no one should ever do. It's inherently wrong from my point of view, right? Mm. If you want to write business logic, use, like, a proper script language, if there was a proper script language in the first place. Saying that, right, which Adobe Confusion never had, and Rylo has much better support support for. Um, then things like, you know, do we want to stick with CF tags in a in an evolved version of the Lucy language and things like that, basically. So currently, the discussion is heading to that way that um, Lucy five or whatever next major version it will be might support a new file type dot Lucy. Mm, I saw that. And, um, that will basically allow you to, you know, write code the modern way, or in a modern way with a cleaned up language, with properly documented behavior of, you know, various scopes and local variables and the var scope and function and all that crap that in Cold Fusion is kind of like really broken in a lot of ways it's because there's no language specification and it's mm. always it's built on top of each other to keep some legacy client happy and not to break stuff for them and you know that whole thing basically currently in rylo that's all or in lucy as it is now it's all supported right and it's basically controlled by a lot of admin switches which is kind of really shit right because when you let's say you were to write a framework you know like take I don't know, transfer, for example, mm, and you yes. want to run it on a Rhino server, um, you really need to kind of know what kind of settings that Rhino server runs in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so you customize, yeah, you can move, you can customize so many things in the admin. It's like, well, you know, how does it look at like application CFC hierarchies or application CFMs and the local scope, does it ignore maybe, you know, I don't know, the form and the URL scope and yada, yada, yada. So you can't really rely on anything. And I think like having a new language that has clearly defined rules and simplified rules and also proper support for all the functionality, obviously, through script would be a really, really good thing for Lucy as a language um, because it would potentially mean it, that it appeals to other people and if you cut off that history of CF tags, like you know, CF output and CF LDAP and all that stuff, you might actually even, you know, get some traction in, you know, attracting people who would otherwise laugh when you suggest using Confusion. From my point of view, at least. Okay, so I have to ask this question, which is like, if you want a better language and a better platform, why not just move? That is a fair point. And I think for, you know, you can obviously argue that for Greenfields projects and Greenfields environments, but let's say you have an existing product or an existing application or an existing massive organization basically running on CFML, moving to a newer version of the language like .lucy files is kind of a gradual improvement. You don't have to throw away your code base, right? You can say like, all right, I leave all my CFML and CFC files as they are. My application continues to work because it will still be supported as like a legacy kind of plugin. And um, new stuff we build with .lucy and follow the new language specification. 
on the same application or the same box. So I can see why I mean, it's they're... a bit more a bit more work, but you could just build microservices and integrate. I I'm not. I mean, then, saying... you, get, then you get into pros and cons of microservices, which is fair enough, I suppose. But I just I don't know. You 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 can argue either way. You know, I can totally see yeah. why people would say like, you know what, I'll just change language and do something else. That's fair enough. But for a lot of organizations outside of the scope of, you know, the stuff we are normally doing, like you and I, working with small teams and reasonably small companies in whichever way, that is hard. You know, imagine you have a development team of CFML developers of 50 people. What the hell do you do? I mean, it's, well, sure, you can retrain them. Yeah. But how long is that going to take you? You know, the economic decision could then be just to say like, well, you know, I mean, we, just try to gradually improve it and use a new language. And to be fair, you know, like CFML as a concept, mm. that abstraction layer on top of like the JVM and allowing you to do certain things in a really easy and nice way, I think that has a lot of appeal still for a lot of people. And it has appealed to me as well. You know, it's like when I do stuff in Java, let's say, sometimes you think like, oh, geez, why is it so hard to do something simple you know, like querying a, a database table to get some data out of it. It's not think, that hard. Oh no, it's not. It's not hard. You know, but compared to compared to writing a CF query in um, in CFML, it's quite verbose to do the same thing in Java. You have to agree with that. Yeah. You can make that. You can make that easier with various libraries. Yeah, but that's the whole thing, right? Like, it's it, you just got to do a little bit more research, and then yeah, you're no, not you're not. You know, like, it's not that bad. No, you don't you have, have... It's not about doing research. It's basically when you use a library on top of Java to do your SQL stuff, let's say, you know, let it be mm-hmm. Hibernate or whatever, um, then there's no difference in using CFML to do your SQL stuff because that's really a library. Actually, I disagree, actually, because then you get to pick and choose exactly what tools you're going to get and you don't have the extra bloat and the extra heavyweight baggage of everything else that comes along. Yeah, that is a fair point. Um, and that will change in Lucy 5 as well. You know, it, from um, what Misha is saying, it will be all OSGI based. So you can essentially pick and, choose the, pick and choose the things you want to load when your Lucy engine starts. Then up. it really becomes Lucy is more of a framework than anything else. Uh, yeah, probably. And I think, again, it's, it becomes a framework with an embedded scripted language, which, which is not a bad thing. I mean, and, uh, to be fair, like the, play, you know, yeah, like the embedded scripting language is, you know, like kind of similar to the ECMAScript family was, of languages. Can you say, are they going to make, um, are they going to, and, and I thought I saw this somewhere, are they going to make the Lucy or the CFML language or both into uh, whatever the JSSR spec is for scripting languages for Java? Yes, I think that's on the cards that you can integrate it with all sorts of other stuff. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then, then, then you can start. I mean, that's. I think that's sort of the big point. I think um, if you can start pulling it apart and just sort of saying, you know, I want this bit and this bit, not this bit and that bit. Um, I think that starts to become a bit more powerful. Um, and if Lucy becomes a really nice language, which I am curious about whether it will or it won't, um, then, then you know, you could see some adoption in some other places. You know, or, or, you know, maybe you can, look, I mean, like, for, for view layer stuff, I've always liked CFML. It's very clean and very clear to sort of do stuff in view layers. So if you could pull that out and put that on top of, like, I don't know, JRuby apps or half a dozen other VM mm-hmm. apps, um, that could be, that could be actually quite compelling. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, like, a lot of the bad reputation for CFML as a language really comes from people using it incorrectly. I mean, that's very similar with like PHP as well, but, right? But that's the, that's the, that was their target demographic. Exactly. It was the target demographic. You know, like every BA type of person can just script something up and put their record sets on a web page back then, basically. Yep. And that's fair enough, right? And that's where, where the history of ColdFusion obviously is. But you can use it in a very proper and very nicely architected way. You know, you would agree with that, I think. If you, you know, follow some I, know, I, I want to say common sense rules, but obviously it's not common sense for everyone, unfortunately. Yeah, 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 you know, but if you follow some architectural practices, it's not that hard to build something that is clean and you know nicely organized and follows more or less best practices if you want to. Yeah, if you want to build a big monolithic app, sure. Oh, you're always so negative, Mark. <laughs> I thought that was your job. Sorry, that was your job. Your job. Oh, the disagreeable. Yeah, yeah, again. it's your job to be the, the grumpy... Uh, 
the grumpy fellow. <laughs> I'm not that grumpy. That's not, yeah, that's... Today, today it's my turn. I'm sitting here. Back in my day, we didn't program with keyboards. We used a magnet and waved it over a computer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cute, Mark. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but anyway, you know, like I think that is a really good change for um for the language. It will be interesting to see what happens to Rylo now. Um, because yeah, that was the first thought I had was like, what is going on over there? <laughs> like, well, what? I think, you know, like, I don't know all the details really what happened there, yeah. but clearly, I mean, you always, you always looked at like Rilo and you identify like Gerd and Misha with Rilo, right? Because they are like kind of the visible driving forces mm. behind Rilo. But the truth is they don't own the trademarks. And the trademarks are owned by a, an entity called TRC, the Rilo company, um, which was formed a few years ago by, I don't know, some other companies. Um, one of them was Rilo Switzerland, I think, and like, um, Prisma IT in Holland. And I think the Mura guys in the US are some sort of involved in there as well. And they bought the trademark basically. So, um, I think pretty much like forking it and going with a new name, was kind of the preferred way of Misha and Gerd Gert to get sort of control back. Is Gerd still involved? Gerd is on the mailing list. I'm not sure exactly what his involvement in the association is. Um, the association has like members and you can pretty much like sign up for a membership. I think it's like $700 a month or something like that. So there are three or four members. And one of the member companies is uh, Raja. And Raja is a new company of GERDs that does like software development, essentially. Okay. Um, so he's involved through his new company. Um, in the actual association, I'm not sure, you know, what the formal roles in a Swiss association are, you know, if there's a chair or a board or whatever. So I have no idea. I'm just, I just stand up for like a supporter thing because I don't really make any money with Lucy. So I, you know, I can't justify paying 700 bucks a month to be a member. Um, so yeah. I'm a supporter, which is much cheaper. Um, but I don't know much about the structure of the association as such. But as you know, Gerd is definitely involved on the mailing list and I've seen him chipping in with things. So okay. yeah, he's still around. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But, but anyway, I mean, you know, Rilo has. On the surface, at least, for what I can see, no developers anymore, or no core developers. So my feeling is it will just fade away, probably similar to, you know, the uh, Hudson Jenkins kind of thing. Is Hudson still doing new new builds? I think so. Really? I (laughs) I haven't. I honestly haven't used Jenkins as a CI server in a very long time. So I'm not sure. Yeah. So I think my impression was at least that Jenkins is. Um, getting all the all the traction now, and Hudson is kind of like you know fading away. And I would expect similar to happen with Rylo or with the Rylo server, because all the new developments obviously going to be done in the Lucy fork. Actually, I'll I'll uh, actually totally not on topic here, but what are you using for CI servers these days? Me? Yeah, I use Jenkins most of the time. Use Jenkins most of the time. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Now I've been using. Um... Uh, for a while there, I was using. Actually, I used it for, for some of my open source stuff because it's free. I use Worker a lot, um, which I quite like. Nice okay. thing about Worker is it's really um, easily extensible. So they've got a marketplace for what they call steps and um, what do they call it? And boxes. So you can set up your own boxes with your own stuff on them. So they're basically VMs, um, and then steps are custom events that you can do in your build process. Um, it's it's currently free. I don't even think they're uh, they're asking for money yet. Okay. Um, but I really liked it for Go and stuff. But um, I wanted to I wanted to plug a guy I met the other day who I've known through the Melbourne and Australian tech community for a while. He's got a site called BuildKite, um, mm-hmm. which is which is a really I think it's a really interesting take on CI stuff. So basically, the idea behind BuildKite is is you want all the nice features of having a hosted um, CI server, which is great, but you don't want to share all your code. Ah, oh, okay. You want to keep it in time. So what it does is it runs an agent on your system 
um, that basically all it does is it tracks metadata. So he he hosts like all the stuff that does it gets all the GitHub hooks and tracks whether something failed or broke and where it failed or broke and whether you want to do deploys and all that sort of stuff and where it wants to go and basically all the metadata. Yeah. But then all it does is it then sends down to the agent, which is hosted locally. Well, actually, the, the agent goes out and pings, so, which is actually easier from what I understand. Um, it hits it locally, runs the tests locally. You know how your tests are run. And then sends that metadata back up. And so it manages all the pretty pictures and everything else for you without having you set up anything other than sort of just this agent, which is which is quite clever, I think. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. I just kind of wanted to ping it because I met the guy the other day. And, uh, Oh, okay. I thought it was. I thought it was a really nice idea to 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 be able to do that sort of stuff without. So you're not you're not trusting an organization with your code if you want a hosted service, and at the same time still reaping a lot of the benefits, most all the benefits of not having to like set everything up yourself and do it yourself. So stuff. On on the same note of like you know build processes, what I haven't had a chance to look into is um, how well or not well Gradle works with Jenkins. Have you actually? Made any, had any experience with that by any chance? I or have with Gradle at all. Never touched Gradle at all. I think I've used it on projects that have it already set up, maybe. Um, but that's probably about it. And I haven't touched Jenkins in forever. Okay, in forever, forever, never, never. Yeah, I got kind of into Gradle recently um, because of doing Android development. And mm-hmm. in Android Studio, in the new IDE, Gradle basically comes as the preferred build and assembling tool. Um, and it's really nice. It's like so much nicer than what Android development had before with, you know, Ant and Maven and all that stuff. So I've started to really like Gradle actually, but I haven't really had a chance to. Seems to have sort of taken over. I've seen just sort of around the spaces as like now the de facto build tool for Java and, and v- JVM projects. I've noticed the, that a lot. Yeah, the, the really cool thing is that you can actually write um, essentially Groovy or Java uh, code in your build file, which mm. is which comes really, really handy. You know, I had a scenario where when I do a build of an Android, I just currently I'm just building through the UI or through the script. Um, so I don't have a build server set up for that. Yeah. But um, so I wanted to basically embed the um, – the revision ID from my mercurial repository into my build number that I can get a build number like 1.0.0.244 or something like that, whatever the revision is that I'm currently building on. And um, so you just like write a little function essentially in Groovy that um, runs an external command against, you know, mercurial. It picks up um, the current revision number, puts it into the standard output and you just read it and embed that into your build file. And that's kind of really neatly done. You know, when you think about doing something similar with Arndt, that would have been a pain in the balls. Yeah, totally. I remember doing all sorts of weird if and loop statements in Arndt, and it was just... Yeah, exactly. It was just nasty. So, you know, I really like Gradle so far, um, and it allows you to do, like, you know, different configurations and stuff. And obviously, Gradle for that... Android Studio comes with its own flavor of a DSL mm. uh, that is, you know, catering for different build types, like a release and a debug build, and like signing the build, uh, the release build with your key and product flavors and things like that. That you can have free and, you know, paid apps and stuff like that. So it's really, really easy to get into Gradle, I think, through actually Android development, and then you know okay. start to write your own write your own stuff based on that. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Well, I know you wanted to talk about it. You said you've been uh, getting into some Android development. Yeah, it's awesome. I would have never, you know, if you if you told me, like, I would say that, ever. <laughs> I would have probably said, like, oh, you're insane. Um, no, it's cool. Um, a client of mine had a, uh, a need for an Android app, and we... Well, they initially looked at doing it through, like, you know, one of those technologies like Titanium or PhoneGap. Um, because it's essentially a wrapper for some web content, but it has to have a lot of additional functionality that PhoneGap can't easily give you in that flexibility that they needed. Titanium would have been nice, but when we started looking into that, um, we ran into an issue with uh, Titanium and the web view 
in Lollipop in Android 5. Oh, yeah. Which we couldn't really come overcome easily without hacking titanium and yeah so we just said like right let's just write it natively so we wrote a native wrapper in android which itself is you know really easy so i you know i got that never having done it before i got that wrapper app going in like eh, one and a half days and it was just working fine but since then we've built a whole lot of you know additional functionality obviously into that like integrated with some third-party things for analytics and um, push notifications and implemented very specific behavior, uh, you know, with like custom navigation and things like that. Like I said, you can't that you can't easily do with PhoneGap. We just wrap like a website essentially. And I have to say, I really enjoy it. You know, cool. it's like Android Studio is obviously a big part of it. You know, like in it's IntelliJ. Android based. Studio is the IntelliJ or the idea product, I should say. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, it's based on IntelliJ 13 currently. Yep. Um, so it's one version back. And the way how it works is essentially you've got like a development team at Google and a development team at um, IntelliJ. And the Google team essentially pulls from the IntelliJ platform and then they marry that with the Android tools on their yep. end and they release Android Studio. And it's currently out in version 1.0.2. So it is actually reasonably stable now and you know there's you know no traumatic changes anymore at least you know not to an extent that i had noticed yeah um and on the other side the intellij team which is currently like you know obviously releasing or you know working on working with version 14 they pull the google code and wrap the google code as a plugin okay so you can in theory use intellij to do android development but it is not really as nice and as seamless. So what I essentially do is I've got IntelliJ for my backend code, um, and I've got Android Studio as a separate installation to do the Android development, and that's that works just fine. Interesting. So it's really convenient, and you know if you know Java, it's so easy to get into it. Basically, Can I you was do really it? surprised. An interesting question, I suppose. Can you do it in other languages? It doesn't support it at all. It's, it's got to be Java. Um, I know people have done Scala to write Android apps. Mm-hmm. And I, I was at a talk where one guy was sharing his experience on doing that um, last year at a conference in Melbourne, actually, that mobile development conference, uh, Yao, Yao Mobile in Melbourne, when we caught up for, for dinner that night. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that guy said, it's possible but you, you're pretty much on your own if you want to do anything like that because you're leaving, you know, all the known and treaded path of, I don't know, API support, build support, tool support, everything. And he yep. basically said it's – it was it, like – it worked it at the end of the day, but it makes things really, really hard. Yep. And nothing is documented on if you want to do anything like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I probably wouldn't recommend that, particularly not if you're, you know, starting into into Android development. I wouldn't probably know where to get started if I was to do a Scala on Android now. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a few things in there, but yeah, no, that makes sense. No, but it's really cool, you know. So like, obviously, from the work I've been doing and that I'm still doing, you know, at the moment, I haven't really done much UI work on Android, like native UI work on Android yet. Um, but the, I found like a really interesting Coursera MOOC on Android development. And so mm. I've been doing that. And they go through all the, um, you know, the proper steps, like, you know, what's an activity, what's an intent, um, how do all those things play together? How do you write a service? How do you write UI code like a native Android? So I'm picking all those things up like yeah, you uh, a, you know, along that. the way. Yeah. And I've got an idea for an app that I want to write, so I'm going to start on that pretty soon now that I don't have to sit any more flying exams for the next few months at least. <laughs> very nice, very nice. All right, yeah. cool. Yeah. I think, you know, it's I think it's getting there. The development experience is really cool compared to the iOS development experience, to be fair, um, which I find still painful, even with, like, Swift. It's still painful. Yep. What I still don't like is or don't like that much is the user experience on Android. I mean, with Lollipop, with Android 5, 
it's actually much, much better again. But, you know, in Android 4, it's like, uh, yeah, some of the things I just don't like. What I really enjoy on Android 5 is the material design. I don't know if you've seen I've looked that. At that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is actually really, really well done. And I think that's a really good step that Google made to improve the usability of the Android platform in the future. Mm. Um, but it comes down to how many people will adopt that, right? So if it's obviously optional. You don't have to build an app with material design. So if people continue to build like really shitty designed Android apps, there's nothing you can do about it at the end of the day. Yeah, but exactly. at least there's like a nice design spec you could follow and you probably end up with an app that actually looks quite polished and, you know, user-friendly and has like kind of a, a look that fits to the modern Android world. Sounds reasonable. All right, cool. So you're getting into your Android stuff. Yeah. I'll just come to you and be like, yeah, I've got an idea. Now, now every 10 minutes, I'll just be like, I've got an idea for an app. Do you find you have family members who do that now? I've got this idea for an app. No, but I regularly get approached by random not random people, but by, you know, people from the wider IT community who have ideas for an app. I mean, that's not new. That's like you know, yeah, it's true. two or three years. And then when you say like, well, what's your idea? And they tell you the idea and what's your budget? And they say like, oh, I don't have any money. Can't you just do it? It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I can totally just do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are, you know, a few really interesting things out there that you could obviously clone and, you know, try to make some money off that. Like, you know, the Flappy Birds idea or something like that. It's like but, Facebook with better. That's my idea. Yeah. Isn't it called Ello? Is anyone still using that? Well, I get emails from them and I, yeah, o- so do I. I occasionally log in and it's actually, it's improved and it's a nice platform. The problem is like, they're just not many people on there or not many of you know my communities on there which might or might not be a good thing even you know you could argue well maybe it's you know nice to have a different kind of community and just look at different people and see what they do and share but my main problem with Ello is currently that they don't have an app yeah that that really annoys me right because that would be really annoying yeah I haven't even looked but that would that would make sense that's just very frustrating so, I mean, Diana is using it, and she's looking at it on her phone in the browser. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't. I can't be bothered, to be honest. If it doesn't have an app, it doesn't exist for me, really, on my phone. Mm, mm. Yeah, I can see that. And that's kind of – I mean, they, they say they are going to release an app at some point this year. Um, but until that has happened, I think it's really hard for me to be on that platform consistently because it's just too much effort. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's certainly fair enough. Cool. I have another question that Ooh. I want to talk about. Um, Go on then. Bring it. And it's a question it. for you, and it's also a question for the general audience, if people are interested in that. Yeah. I'd be interested to get opinions on what do people do in regards to, you know, database structure and database code, like stuff like triggers and stored procedures, if you have that and properly version controlling them and changes in them. Well, and I know there are like, you know, certain options like there are migrations in Ruby and there are yep. various tools out there. I'm just interested in like, you know, what are really good solutions and what are shitty solutions and why do people do certain people choose one over the other? And I'm just, you know, because the, I'll tell you the history quickly. So the history is um Obviously, I think it should be completely version controlled in some way, right? And you mm-hmm. want to have like SQL scripts for everything, essentially, yep. to upgrade a database from A to B and back to A and do all those of things with it. And from a best practices point of view, I think that's common sense. No one would argue against that, right? Or should. If people argue against doing that, we need to have a serious talk. But then in the practicality kind of thing, uh, practicality question is like a lot of people will say, yeah, it's best practice, but we just have one big development database. We don't need to do that. 
or, oh, you know what, our developers can't write SQL code that well that they can write scripts whenever they need something changed. You know, people come up with excuses, like, you know, with, yep. for everything, obviously. And I'm just wondering, like, what are people in the real world doing? Um, is it, I mean, are really many people following the best practice or wouldn't most people just go with some, you know, more or less lazy compromise approach or not do, not do anything at all? Yeah, I think, I think you'll find the majority of people, I know, speaking from what I've seen, I would say the vast majority of people use something like, say, Rails migrations or basically a migrations toolkit that comes packaged with whatever framework they're using or a specifically, a specific tool for doing migrations. I've not used those, to be honest. Um, I've done, a, I've done a bit of, um, yeah, storing SQL queries. I've done that a lot. Um, and it depends on your database too. Obviously, if you're using a NoSQL database, this becomes less an issue. Um, things like that. So when when you've basically you're able to update your schema based on just what, whatever it is you feel like doing, then it doesn't really matter. Um, so yeah, that's, that is fair enough. I think you know NoSQL databases are like a different different use case. I mean, I'm more or less yeah. looking at SQL based solutions. That's fair enough. Um, so yeah, I think from my from what I've seen around me, most people use some sort of migrations framework. Okay. Um, that's shorter than yeah, I thought. Yeah, that's, that's really what it sort of boils down to. I mean, you could yeah. you could hand roll it, but why bother? Yeah, hand rolling it is hard. I saw a tool the other day when I was looking into a solution for a client um, called Flyway DB. Oh yeah, uh, it's like an open source tool, you know, hooking into your database via JDBC essentially. And it's promising to take care of a lot of those problems, like you know, looking at the database and changes basically. So you take an initial snapshot, it creates like a massive whatever XML data structure of for film, mm. of your database, and then it looks at changes, and you can actually specify changes in XML as well instead of you know writing writing SQL code and then it applies or unapplies them. But I haven't really spent a lot of time looking into that. So there that, are some tools out there that will also do diffs based on database structure. That I've mm, seen okay. out there um, to make life easy. So if you're if you're working locally and you make a whole bunch of changes, then you're like, okay, what's my diff? And then you get a SQL query out of it. Um, I actually feel like there's one in Eclipse, but I haven't touched it in years. There's a few around. I haven't seen them very much, very often. They are okay. around though. Yeah, there is um, a book that is called. Let me just have a look if I can find it. Recipes for continuous database integration. And that's kind of interesting. That goes into the, the right direction. Mm. Um, you know, how do you ship, like, you know, if you have a product, for example, that's installed, you know, at client premises, how do you ship, like, you know, database updates to them and doing all sorts of, you know, covering all sorts of questions in there. But, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to get a feeling for what people think is practical versus best practice and how, you know, how strictly people stick to best practices in that field in the first place. Because my feeling mm. is most people don't at all. Yeah, I think, I think from what I heard at the very least, um, a lot of the migration frameworks tend to be tied to things like ORMs or at least data mappers. Mm. Um, and so that sort of gets tied together. Uh, but outside of that, um, that becomes an interesting question. I don't know. Again, depends on your platform. I don't think there are many. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good one. That's a good one. So, I mean, you you know Ruby, right? So like reasonably, sort of. Ish. Well, you've written. I've written Ruby. Well, I've written Rails. Yeah. I don't know Rails. Okay, so like the Rails migrations, do they tie into the into the ORM layer? Uh, I can't can you... ask that question definitively. I'll tell you that much. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. I will. Let me actually bear with me one sec. Uh, Ruby. What were we using? What was I using? Uh, ah, that's right. I was using a. I was using a data mapper type deal called SQL. It was actually really nice. Yeah, this is the one. Um, I'd use that. Does it have migrations? Hey, migrations. Um. Oh yeah, 
So I'm just looking at this. Is, so this is a tool I used to use in Ruby called SQL, S-E-Q-E-L, um, okay. which is quite nice. Um, it has stuff in it which has to do with migrations. It doesn't look like it's really tied to anything, to be honest. Um, I'll chuck that on the list. Do, 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 do. I haven't used it, but I, I, I have used the SQL for um, just doing basic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, just doing basic data mapping sort of deals, and it was quite nice. It was quite nice to use. Hmm, okay. So I would I would expect that there are other pieces for nice. So you know, like if any listener has to um, contribute something, please feel free to do that in yep. the comments because I'd be really interesting to you know learn a bit more what cool. people are doing on that end. And we always enjoy interaction with our community. Exactly. In fact, I had a very nice day the other day. I was at the local Go meetup and I had one of the guys there come over to me and specifically say, "Hey, I just wanted to let you know I really enjoy your podcast." Cool. Which was lovely. It was really nice. I can't believe that people are really listening to that. Apparently they are. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. So I think we've got one more thing on our list, right? Do you want to oh, talk yeah. about that quickly? Uh, oh, uh, my thing? Yeah, the bottom, that one. The Docker and Fig and, oh, my God, it's awesome? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the document says OMG, not OMG, it's awesome. So I'm not... That's true. That is true. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, so I, I know what Docker is. That's fine. What's fake? So I didn't know what Docker is, which was, which is probably oh, really? like, I, no, no. Well, I knew what Docker was, but I never really played with it at all. Um, and so I started doing that and found that was really nice. I really enjoyed that. And, um, and so I started building out some, so, okay. So I wanted to set up a local development environment that had Neo4j in it. And I was going to write some Go binaries and, and put them in Docker processes. Um, and, um, what should we call it? And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll start playing with Docker and see how that goes. And the neat thing about that was I was able to go onto the Docker hub registry and grab an image for the Neo4j server. And I didn't have to set that up at all and remember how to do that. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. Um, what fig is, is basically a way to set up local, uh, development environments, um, f with Docker. So you write this little fig.yaml file, and it tells it, okay, what Docker processes to bring up, what images to use, or if you're using local builds, what builds to use. You can overwrite variables very easily, so like environment variables, pass that through. You can mount local directories as um, as volumes on your on your on your in, your in your Docker file. So if you want like it to be able to see local binaries or local images or stuff like that. So it's a really really simple way of you know. And then oh yeah, you can also say hey expose this to that person or expose that to this person so they know what ports are available and like they get host entries so they can communicate. Discoverability internally is really simple. Um, it's pretty slick actually. It's um, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. It's how how I built some stuff recently. Uh, to, to work and it's been uh, it's been really 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 nice. Um, yeah, I'm just on the Fig website having a quick look at it. Yeah, it's pretty slick. Um, you specify ports that you want to be open locally. I actually used it, um, so I've got this thing I've, I'm building at the moment um, just for for a presentation, and I'm using it locally to show it. But I also chucked it up on on a Compute Engine instance using Fig, and I was just like, oh well, I'm just going to pull down my Git repo and. Then I'm just gonna go, and I just gotta make command. I've got makeup, so it's basically it's called fig up, and it just built all its images and set up all my code, and went boop, and boom, it was done. Hmm, cool. And um, yeah, it's I was pretty impressed actually. It was pretty cool. I quite liked it. And I think they, yeah, they, they, yeah, it's, it's an actual Docker project. Um, Docker is its own beast, and there's all sorts of controversy around that too, which is good fun. Yeah. So, is it? What's the relationship of Fig and Python? Oh, that's just a Python Python example they're running here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that looks interesting, particularly if it's so easy to you know customize it and set up ports and local things in. So that gets passed into the Docker file, into the Docker container, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you can pass like so environment variables or. Um, I do stuff, you know, I just, I have my Go binaries locally, but I just mount it as a volume, you know, do mm. that sort of stuff. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty slick. Okay. Cool. I should have a look into that. I mean, Docker itself is nice, you know, like just 
being able to have your little containers with various things and have them interact and push them yeah. up somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I quite, I quite like it. Cool. And I'm assuming you've got some links in. Oh yeah, I've got some links in our show notes, so we'll put them into the blog post as well. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That was pretty much all for today, wasn't it? I think so. I'm getting hungry. It's about breakfast time. Oh yeah, breakfast is over for me for quite a while. <laughs> I need to think about lunch lunch planning. <laughs> oh, it's a tough life. Tough yeah, life. I know. To do it. Yeah. Cool. So, should we aim for doing those podcasts more regularly again? I mean, I, I know you, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, I know that you are away for the next two weeks, but when you're yeah. back, you should pretty much right away do the next one. Yeah, right. Sounds good. I'll have probably some news one way or another. Ah, yeah, that could be interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we have a time difference in the other direction then from the future. We'll, we'll be two developers, one down under and one who used to be down under. Two D D O who W U D U or something. Something. Yeah, we're not going to change the domain just because you moved. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't want to do that either. That just seems hard. Okay. It cool. seems like a lot of work. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So, um, have a nice trip and have a nice holiday. And Thank um, you. how can people get hold of you if they really want to? If they really, really, really want to, um, they can reach me probably through my website. It's the easiest at www.compoundtheory.com. Uh, it's probably redundant, www. Um, but yeah, hassle me on Twitter. It's normally the best way at neurotic. How about cool. you? Um, the easiest nowadays is probably still Twitter. Um, just use at Agent K yep. and you will get hold of me in one or the other way. Lovely. Obviously, awesome. our contact details are on our website at 2ddu.com and we very much appreciate any comments or questions or any sort of interaction at all on our website. Exactly. That would be awesome. And in particularly about the DB versioning and migrations topic. You know, yep. Give me some feedback and info what you do. Cool. Cool. Alrighty. It was a pleasure to talk to you. As Always usual. a pleasure to talk to you as well. Yep. So, um, again, have a nice trip and I'll talk to you in a few weeks. Speak to you then. Cool.